This show was never intended to be live. Well, uh, so the thing that I told you a minute ago, I was referring to that we missed was we missed our five year anniversary. If you can believe that. Really? Yeah. Episode one was a cacophony of MVPs. And that was October 24th, 2013. I wasn't an MVP at the time. No, but oh, you weren't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we missed our five year. Wow. We suck at that. Been doing five years. We didn't do one year. We've never tracked anything. I think because at the time we we just weren't we just weren't sure if anyone really cared about that kind of stuff. And I think you it's and I care. It's not about anyone else. It's not about anyone else. Yeah, but I mean, do we sit here and pat ourselves on the back and say we we did this for no? Free for it's five just years. nice to recognize like milestones. I mean, it's like the same reason why we celebrate three hundred sixty five revolutions around the or on the whatever around the sun or whatever the hell it is. Not around the sun. That'd be three hundred sixty five years. Just, oh, you mean New Year? Or or birthdays or whatever? Any anniversaries? New Year oh. birthdays? Yeah, it's just something. It's a reason to celebrate. It's a milestone. It's my birthday. It's, it's, a, it's a moment for reflection. Yeah. Well, anyway. what do you reflect on the, over the last five years of, of doing this? Which is kind of, well, yeah. I, mean. I don't know, because I, I wasn't prepared for this. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. I just noticed, because I went back to our first episode. You have episode. to prepare your feelings? You no, I don't. You feel no, about I something? Just, no, but I just haven't, you know, I have not collected with my thoughts about it. But I don't know. What do I think of it? It's been fun. I, I've... I mean, I think the thing I like the most, I think I've just met a lot of people because of this podcast. Yeah. Made a lot of friends. I think people that I'll, you know, have long, long lasting, lifelong relationships with. That's definitely the takeaway for me. That and that massive revenue stream, you know, it's kind of hard not to like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, I think, uh, I think the this, this circle of people that we know is expanded beyond just our kind of local Dallas area or whoever we tend to meet at a conference. I mean, we, we have people that we know all over, which is kind of kind of cool. Getting yep. all those different perspectives. Yep. All right. I'm, well, I'm let's drop this. The beer. Yeah, I'm going to drop it. <laughs> Just be careful. Don't spill it because we have carpet. It's carpet in here. No, oh, like you haven't burst open a couple of. I have, and it reco- and then it results in me having to bring <laughs> a steam cleaner up here and cleaning the carpet and the couch and that chair. All right, so let's go to some community stuff. Let's start out with that. Okay. Um, first thing, uh, this is from Stephen Noe. Stephen with Noe. Uh, <laughs> this is actually about me. He goes, is there any reason John always says WWW when given the URL for Slack sign-up? Oh, I, I, I saw this question. I haven't answered Don't that. Don't all br- browsers add that for us automatically these days, or is John just trying to make the podcast IE6 No, it's, it's, it's that John is anti-web. He always has been. He still doesn't quite get it. That you it? don't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, my- I, I think I... I I think I just started doing it and it stuck with me because it, I try to do it in a certain cadence and pattern. And so that, that just became part of the pattern. And if you go to www, does it not? I, I guess we don't have a canonical. Or let, let's see, if I, if I leave that off, okay, if I leave that off, I get, I get redirected to www. So, that, so www is our canonical, I guess, website. So I, I don't have to say it. <clears throat> no, because you, yeah, you'll get redirected to it. <laughs> and I don't think for any, any, Significant uh, any, of any website of any significance have you have you had to enter the www in forever? I, I pers- you know it's just I arbit- personally don't. It's I don't just arbitrary. Do it. It's just a, it's a convention. Yeah, I mean that's back back in the days when like if you wanted to basically guess at like what the FTP or the or if you're really or the over the or the website or the um, perhaps the uh, the Veronica or the Gopher. You, if the, 
if you remember that far back. No, I no, don't. No. You're old. Yeah. But it, no, it was, just a, it was a way to easily guess at what that may be, but now everything's just auto magic and it's web is made for dummies nowadays. No one has to know anything. You just, uh, literally you can just type anything up in the URL bar and it get in it <laughs> gets you where you want to go. <laughs> That's true. Or as most people do, they go to Facebook and just search from for there. I mean, Facebook is, it's like a, it's like AOL. Really? People use Facebook? Oh yeah. Like yeah. That? People use Facebook like it, like it's AOL. Oh, I mean, I you can, well, think about it. Every business has a Facebook page nowadays. It's, it's like, um, what was it on AOL? The, the, ta- uh, no keyword. What were they? Keywords? Yeah, AOL keywords, right? Short co- short codes. What were they? Yeah, key, key, yeah, AOL keyword. You know, shoe or whatever. Or Nike would go to Nike's little mm-hmm. AOL homepage. And that's what Facebook has become. Mm. It's the web for dummies. I'm not a fan. <clears throat> well, we just had an election, and Benioff's uh, San Francisco Proposition C passed. You remember the thing he was fighting with? You know, against a lot of the other tech entrepreneurs, CEOs or whatever. Mm-mm. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this, and I, I feel like this kind of came out of nowhere. It was just kind of a couple of weeks ago, kind of popped up, but Benny, there, Benny, there's this proposition C um, that was on San Francisco's ballot. And it was basically a proposition to tax any business. I, and I'll probably get this wrong over 50 uh, with over 50 million in revenue. Yeah. 50 million in revenue. And I think it tries to only tax their San Francisco revenue, which is the kicker there. Mm. Because if you think of a company like San Francisco, uh, like Salesforce, I mean, they what percentage of their revenue is actually derived from customers that are in San Francisco? So that's the weird part. And the other, and that doesn't one, make sense that it would do that. Because one of the reasons why some of these tech people or these other tech CEOs were arguing with Ben is because, like they said. Because of the way they have like this global business, and and they said it's we don't even know how to figure out what revenue we have, what percentage of it is San Francisco, and it's and if we even if we could, it'd be like a constantly changing number or whatever. But anyway, it's supposed to raise around three hundred million. Um, you know, at some point Benioff jumped on and started supporting it and kind of publicly battled. Yeah, who, I mean, who did he battle? He battled <laughs> the um. Who's the square CEO? Twitter Jack Square. Jack, Jack, yeah. Uh, Dorsey. Oh yeah, Jack Dorsey. Yeah, I love that name. Uh, and then uh, he got into a battle the other day with Mark Pincus of uh, Zynga. Yeah, there's been some other ones too. Yeah, I I don't know why I spaced whenever you said prophecy because or maybe I didn't hear it because I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he really got it. Reminded me of yeah. you know you need to quit touching your microphone. You you you're good for a, a good half dozen microphone bumps and touches during any given episode. I like touching it. Well, apparently you do. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, it's weird because you know, ben, you remember when he? When was the last time he? You know, was doing all this, you know, naming and shaming. What was that about? You it was about his one 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 model. Oh, that's right. He was you know, you got to give money the up. way I want you to give yeah. money. Yeah, yeah. And now it's same thing again. So that got passed then, right? That passed. Yep. So the uh, people are saying yeah, the the homeless industrial complex one. Sounds sort of like the military industrial complex. Oh. It's the because it's you know there's. There are, there's already, I mean, I think somewhere on the order of a hundred million dollars a year or something like that to go to these various uh, nonprofits that basically run all this homeless stuff in San Francisco. And, and one of the arguments, and I, I, you know, I don't really don't want to get into the details of this because I don't care. It's not my city and I try not to try, try to never go there. Um, but it's uh, one of the arguments was it, the money is going to these nonprofits and they're not accountable. So the city, it's the power of the city that's taxing, collecting the money. 
then the money gets sent to these nonprofits, but the city doesn't have any ability to govern or manage these nonprofits or, or hold them accountable or measure them or whatever. So is that the argument of why? That was the argument, like why the, the San, Francisco, San Francisco mayor was against it. That was her mm-hmm. argument. Um, and there's, you know, there's just lots of other opinions on how better, better ways to, to help the homeless other than just throwing more billionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars at them. I uh, guess we'll find out. It got passed, so we'll see how they manage it. Yeah. And so we know that the other benefit for Benioff is now all the rich businesses of San Francisco get to clean up Benioff's playground. So his, you know, parties are nicer and cleaner. That's, that's nice. Right. And, and of course all the, all the people of San Francisco who aren't, you know, it's not a tax on people or property. Right. So all the individuals, citizens of San Francisco, they see this as just a tax on these, you know, billionaires or, or big businesses. And so I think to, to most people, that's probably why I passed because to most people it's like, yeah, sure. Tax those big businesses. And do something with, get the homeless out of my face. Yeah. So they saw it as a benefit. But yeah, Benioff uh, put his weight behind it. And there's a lot of weight there. And it, uh, it passed. Cool. Uh, did you see this tweet from, since you're not going to talk, I keep I wanting to. I don't know what no, you're doing I, over there. I, Should I, we just stop the I, show I, now? No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. I'm still trying to work out how this is going to work. Because... <laughs> See, this is how we have, we have, we have people. <laughs> it's a typical show for us. John's distracted. All right. I'm just talking to myself here. No, no, no. I got this distracted. Is, I got yeah. distracted. So, so here's the thing. If, if you're on the live feed, welcome. Um, we are using Slack for chatting versus the live app tools chat. Um, if you go to Slack, there's a channel called live. Um, there's a thread for this episode, which is episode 194. And, uh, oh, you have to talk it. You know, that, you know, let's not have to put all of our in a thread. That's, that's unnecessary. You think so? Yeah, yeah. You don't think you're going to want to? No. Okay. Nah. All right. This is, this is temporal. Jeremy says it's very transient data. Just I would say just. Jeremy says put the put the comments wherever you want. Yeah. And uh, it, just in the live channel is fine. We don't need. You to, have to answer to Jody. We're not, not organizing. Huh? You have to answer to Jody, not me. We're not using threads. That's fine. <laughs> I just think it would make it easier for people to reference or clutter things up. But yeah, this isn't Wikipedia. We don't need to reference like something you know. From six episodes ago, plus our Slack, we know we were already running out of. Uh, we're already past the limit anyway, so stuff more than no, there's no historical. Yeah, it goes away. Yeah, yeah. Threadless, yes, that's correct. Um, okay, so what I was saying was, uh, Mr. Fish of Prey, Daniel Bollinger, uh, tweeted a couple days ago uh, this process builder problem he was having, and basically is he had got these process builders that are hitting like the CPU time limit. Mm-hmm. And he was saying it takes three seconds to update three fields on 49 opportunity line items. And it, well, I guess he was hitting limits or whatever. But I, I you know, I don't like, I don't really do process builder. Um, I know enough to be dangerous with them. And I know that I try to avoid them for, for various reasons. Not the, the, the greatest of which is not even performance. It's actually other reasons. Um, but I do like to pop in every once in a while and just, you know, see what's going on with the process builder world. Yeah. Or, and as in, in this case, it pops up to me. But is this, is this, I feel like you do more of that stuff than I do. Yeah, I struggle with it because um, when I'm architecting solutions, I, 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 of course, try to work with what's native first before I start pulling back the covers and start trying to code. So I, I, I haven't written off process builder and I haven't written off flows. Um, I still make them part of the design as an option. Um, more often, I exclude them for reasons, um, but I try to make a case for it versus just saying, I don't like it, so I'm not using it. I try to build up some kind of case of why I wouldn't want to use it. 
Well, they've got, you know, they've got, clearly they've got pros and cons, right? Um, and I know this is, sorry, people, this is one of these things that we're just always going to talk about every once in a while as process builder, but. <clears throat> well, I do have it on my topic and to cons, flow, to me, we do like, have some updates on that. I mean, what is the pro of it other than someone who doesn't know code can get in there and jack with it? What I is see, the, what's I, I the pro a, other than that? I see it as a much richer way of defining your workflow for, as opposed to the native workflows, which was. I think I think it's a step above that. Okay, so if you're comparing workflow to process builder, yes, yeah, because not only do you get more capability, but the tooling itself and the interaction and how you build that workflow is much yeah, and you've got um, much more intuitive. I would right. say you've got you know logic and branching and mm-hmm. and conditionals. Well, right. I mean, have conditionals and workflow, but they're they're better in process builder. That and versioning and all that kind of stuff. But they're also yet another point of DML, which is. Again, at some point, will be the bane of your work as a self. And that, that's more of an issue, I think, because of the implementation of it, the way it was implemented. Yep. And I, I, mean, I used to have the the policy forever that on on any given object, and and I know this is this is actually a kind of a reductive policy, but if you follow it, it actually it will it will solve you. It will keep you from running into problems. As soon as an, as soon as we have to put triggers on an, on a certain object, then we take the workflow off and we convert it all to trigger, because then you have kind of one source of your logic's in one place. You can you can design your code well so that you're you know you can um, you can highly you have fine control over when things fire, how they're firing, and you can you can see them all in one place. Whereas you know if you're if you're doing workflow field updates and you have triggers and you have process flow pro, whatever they are, all these other things. I mean the DMLs just are they're flying all over the place. You don't know where they're coming from. You're looking at a debug log going. I can't, I just, I can't figure it out. It's just yeah. too, there's too much stuff going on. Um, you, it, it really does, but it becomes inception because the stack just starts, you start piling and piling and piling on the stack. Yeah. And that, that is and one it's, of, it's recursive and it's just like, this is, this is too much. I mean, <clears throat> that is one of the considerations I make, but, um, and, and I guess for, for a greenfield, like, you know, someone's doing a first time implementation of Salesforce, you can, you have the opportunity to make in those type of decisions. A lot of times you have an admin who, has gone off and started building a bunch of stuff, and they've already started using Process Builder, and you kind of have to find a way to coexist. So I, I think it's inevitable that we're, we're going to have to find a way to coexist with Process Builder and Flow. We're not going to be able to just just blow it off completely. Yeah, so real-time update. Um, Jody M has weighed in, and, and for live, non-threading is fine. So thank you, Jody. Thank you for that uh, declaration, That's that judgment. But she's also saying uh, not to write off flows. I'm, I got, I don't think I'm writing anything off. And I don't even, uh, flows, flows to me are a whole other thing. They're, they're not, because uh, like process builder and triggers to me are two different tools that accomplish basically the same thing. Whereas flow is a whole other thing. It's like, you know, have got, um, it's all, it's, it's a UI thing, right? It's a way to, I mean, it, to build UIs for things. And so I don't, it's, it's a whole other thing. I mean, yeah, they can do DML as well, they can they can update the database, right? But yeah, um, it's a visual tool. Yeah, I guess I would consider it put it in the class of visual. I mean, that's traditionally how I use it. You can do things like writing what's called a headless flow, which is essentially just something that runs in the background. It kind of acts like a trigger. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and those came about because obviously native workflow just didn't have certain capabilities. This has <laughs> other capabilities that let you do more things. But at its base, at its core, its purpose is definitely to provide some kind of interface. See, that's the problem now because Jody's going to. Crack me up this whole episode. <laughs> uh, and Jay, of course, Jay is representing the Jeremy position, which is why not code all this in Apex? 
Which well, is because people come back from Dreamforce all excited about the things they can build I know. in the cloud. Well, again, it depends on. I mean, who you have to look at your team. I mean, and and yeah. what's the plan for maintaining this in yeah, exactly. in the future? I mean, if if you've got um, you know, and ad, if you've got people who are admins or or they just don't want to mess with Apex or they just don't have strong programming skills and they're way more comfortable and they're God, I've seen people just that are just killer in like with process builder. I mean, they really know what they're doing. They know how to do process builder right. Although mm -hmm. I think there's just a fun, there's an inherent limitation to how right it can be. Right. But still, I mean, if anyone knows how to do it right, I've seen people that have, that have, you know, thought these out and they're very well organized and even blows my mind. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, but it's still an argument. If, it's not an argument to write it off because you can have bad developers doing bad things. Oh, absolutely. So it, it, to me, it's the right. same difference. It, it is. I mean, if you don't, right. The, the worst thing to do is like do a bunch of stuff in Apex and triggers and then you don't have the right people that, that can actually build it and or maintain it. I mean, right. you'd be much better sticking with the other tools. So a lot of it just has to do with your team, I think. Yeah. Uh, the, t the tough thing though is when you start to get into the area where you have an org, you have problems or whatever that really need something. Uh, they re does really need triggers and, and, and the power of code and the, the, just the flexibility and the, like the organi organization power, I guess. I don't even know what the right term is. Like, I mean, there are certain features that give you some performance boost. Um, well, I don't think it's been enabled yet, but for right now, callouts are definitely something that's out of scope for, and it's coming. It might even be there already for flows. For, but, uh, for process building? Yeah, but for a while there, there was just certain things you had to do in code, like you well, know, executing you... callouts, or if you needed the before context, because everything else was running in an after context, um, if you wanted to run something asynchronously. Um, there's ways of accomplishing it now, but it kind of takes kind of like a hand-in-hand -hand shake with a developer to, to accomplish. Right. Okay, I got you. So, like, if can a process builder call an invocable method that does yes. callouts? Yeah. So the tricky thing is that with that is that whoever's designing your process builders, I don't know, that's not what they're called, but there's no good word for processes? it. Processes, processes. That's an overloaded term. Salesforce already has things called processes. Anyway, um, is they have to understand because you know there's that problem of if you have started a transaction before you do a callout, it gets dropped. The transaction gets dropped. Yeah. And. You know, <laughs> if you, uh, <laughs> and then of course, if you try to do any DML after the call, then it, it's going to fail. And, you know, now yeah. you're in a point where like you, whoever's designing your process builders really has to understand all this stuff. And it, it's a, again, it's a leaky abstraction, like process builders, like, oh, look how simple everything is. We have squares and rectangles and you just drag and drop them in whatever. And it's like <laughs> to a certain degree, but then that, that abstraction starts leaking like a, you know. Like a, a, I don't know, what would it be leaking like, John? <laughs> I was going to say some old man, but... <laughs> a, how about a poorly maintained ship of some sort? Anyway. Maybe. No, I, I think you're right. I, I think um, it, it's, it's definitely one of those things that as the capabilities of the system grow and as the capabilities of point-and-click tools grow, you do have to have kind of temper yourself and, and have some sense of responsibility. You know, it's, it's one of those just because you can doesn't mean you should situations, you really still have kind of, kind of have to think through what your process is, how you're going to maintain it. And that really comes into some of the things that I do when I'm trying to architect these solutions and why I may or may not decide to go with a flow or may or may not decide to go with, with a process builder. Some of it, some of it I factor in is, is are we maintaining it? Or is the client expecting us to continue the relationship and be there to maintain it? Or have they early on expressed the, the need to they're going to hire someone. They want to maintain this. They want to own this. And so I do factor those things in. And I will try to use things like Process Builder and Flow to give them that opportunity to maintain that. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, I guess I think the same the same consideration applies if you're an internal Salesforce person at a company. You know, you, you what happens when you move on? Who's right. going to maintain it? I mean, it's it's this again. I think the organization as a whole has to have a strategy for what is our strategy for this? Do we do we want to basically commit to always having a software developer on staff mm-hmm. or not? Yeah, I think yeah. it's a, it's kind of a conscious decision you you need to try to make. Well, I I just saw the chat and Jody makes a good point, and it's a point that I wanted to bring up as well is that. Another factor is how stable the processes, processes, I don't know the plural, whatever the right plural is, how stable those processes are. Um, a lot of times we come in and the client is not only implementing Salesforce, but they're also building new processes. They, they're like, this isn't working. It's, it's rare that you come in and they go, we got a solid process, we just need the system to help us here, here, and here. Usually it's a little bit combination of both where they're implementing Salesforce, but they're also destabilizing their process because they want to do some things. They Are you guys talking about things. business processes? Right. Okay, gotcha. And that tends to affect the workflow in the system, the way notifications are handled. Maybe they, maybe before Salesforce, they were very, they lived in email and now they want them to live in Salesforce and that's going to change the, the process and how it works. And that can be a factor too. It's hard to say, I'm going to come in and code everything to this process that you just invented a minute ago and you haven't even test trialed to see if it's actually going to work for you. Yeah. So that means when you change it, I have to come in and Spend another ten grand to fix it all for you. Yeah, and you know, some of this comes back to I wish refactoring were easier in the Salesforce world. It's really difficult. Oh, I got myself in trouble. Did I tell you that? Well, because the, well, and I want to before this scrolls off the screen here, but you know they're talking about in, in the chat here how um, you know it's it's not some of these tools are nice for just trying things out, like you know just like prototyping or seeing what's possible, or really a lot of times what you're doing is you're you're not flushing out. That's different. Flushing out your actual requirement sometimes building a little bit of a solution even if it's like a prototype scale it helps you understand the and clarify your problem and you know you put it in front of people then they have a more a, a higher not higher level but a more a next level discussion of the problem based on seeing a potential solution in, in practice yeah i think but you want to be able to those should be throwaways they need to be fast and like if if process builder is you know five times faster than writing some Apex, whatever, then I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can see that. There, there are certain individuals or clients that are very uh, visual-focused. Um, I tend to kind of put that kind of stuff in some kind of use case where, where possible. Because just writing out step-by-step step what a user has to do to, to accomplish a, a task or an activity or some step in the process can really kind of surface up how tedious, they do, how tedious it really is. Um, sometimes it's easy to just kind of say, oh, well, they need to create this task to go do this thing. But then when you actually break it down to all the different tasks of what that means, you can see how it's going to be. It's the right word. You can see how tedious it's going to be. I keep reusing that word. I was trying to come up with a different word. But you can see how tedious it's going to be and how difficult it's going to be and how much time it's actually going to take if we do it that way. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, oh, I also wanted to mention... Uh, Daniel has got a really cool looking tool. What is it called? Because I want to make sure I plug it correctly. Maybe someone knows. But it's it's um you know what his tool is called? Um you you've heard of it. I've I've I think I've even used it, but I need to I need to I need to take a look at it again. Someone will tell us in a minute. But it's um one thing that's got really cool, it's basically like a, a stack aware or like hierarchical um log viewer. Oh. Yeah, so you can actually visualize the the stack as as DML statements are being Keep made or whatever. Your desk. I know, I'm, is that well, and through? it's coming through. I know, and I don't. It's something is touching that shouldn't be touching here, and I don't know what it is. So, sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, I um, 
I've been wanting to, I've been wanting a tool like that. Um, I've been on the edge of writing it myself if I wasn't so lazy. He, this is awesome. Daniel had a, <laughs> a Dreamforce talk that was, at least the URL is happysoupmix.html. <laughs> oh, maybe that's why I don't use it. I've, I've looked at it from afar and wished I could run it, but I can't because it only runs on Windows. What is it called? That's what I can't find. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I, I wish there was something like that. I actually was thinking about, I needed something like that the other day, and I was like, gosh, should I just like, try to write something that yeah. some, somehow visualizes the, the log? Because it, it needs to understand all the like begin and end type stuff so that it can, you can follow the... But I think, I think, um, I think log might be the wrong place for it. I, I actually... Once upon a time, back when MVPs did a summit, we were in front of the product managers and they were talking about Lightning. And they were talking about just kind of what our wish list for things were. And one of the ones I, I brought up, which I would love to see, is I, I guess I presented it as kind of a logging thing. But really, I want to be able to see when the system starts a transaction, when it ends it, and all the kind of milestones that happen in between it so that I can see where the bottlenecks are. Or I can see where something's running multiple times. So it's not so much that I want a detailed log of everything that's happening. It's that I want to see all the different things that are getting triggered and executed and how long those executions are taking, kind of maybe Gantt chart looking, um, just to kind of visualize what's going on. Yeah, but not Gantt chart. You mean something else? Some kind of time, ti some timeline? Kind of, yeah, yeah, some, yeah, something some, like that. Kind of some kind of time Similar to thing. like in Chrome when you open up the dev tools and you can see the net, all the networking, you can see it, all the different things it had to download yeah. and how long each one of those took. And you can see the stack of the things that were in parallel and the stuff that was run synchronously. That would be perfect. Yeah. We could get that. Yeah. Yeah, back in the gold days when MVPs actually had summits. I would say the the MVP benefits are just like healthcare benefits. They just keep they just keep waning over time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kinda. Jeremy, MVP twenty nineteen. Yep. All right. Uh let's see. Well, I've got one more thing, John. And that's something that I had for, I think, a couple weeks ago. Oh, well, before we change topics, okay. um, I did want to talk about, because Flows has been on my mind lately, um, and the fact that I have to use them sucks because I have to run Flash. Flows or Process Builder? Flows. Okay. Um, you're aware of the flash. flash requirement, right? Well, I thought the Builder required Flash. The Builder does, yes. But they're working on a new one that doesn't, Yeah, supposedly. Yeah, so we got an update on that recently, um, That and they showed a screenshot of it, and it looks nicer, um, but it looks... So you have decision blocks, a little more colorful, but the, the key thing is it shouldn't require Flash, which is... What, what are they going to do with these Flash developers that have been working on that? I thought first, they, first they, I'm, they, I'm assuming they, that they've actually made any kind of enhancement and improvement to it over, since they bought it like five years ago. I don't know. <laughs> but at least from the screenshots that I've seen of, of the kind of flow builder itself, it does look cleaner, it does look easier to understand. It does look like... Um, it, it looks much easier to understand. Okay, so what was your, what was your point, though? What were you... Oh, that, that we're finally getting some more information on it. They were finally okay. seeing screenshots of it. We've known that they've been working on it. We've known that people have said, yes, we're working on it. We know it's a problem. And we finally have confirmation. Yeah. They're actually starting to release documentation. Um, spring 19, I think, is when they're saying it's going to be released. Because there was a rumor for a while that it was actually just go it was going to go away. Remember that? Yeah. And, and they're like, no, it's not going away. Actually, we're building it. We're rebuilding it without Flash or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Hey, ground-up rewrites are always fun. You don't get to do them very often. Surprisingly, they said that this will be available both for Lightning and Classic. So, 
it's probably like a React app that's going to be buried in some div of of whatever you put it in. So yeah, it's sure. it's agnostic. Well, it does use the Lightning Design System. It does look very pretty. Hopefully, they're mm-hmm. hopefully they got access to a better uh, Lightning Design System than everyone else does. The one that doesn't look quite the same and doesn't keep up and has whatever. Yeah. <laughs> hey, is Lightning yeah. out still a thing? Yeah, is it okay? Still a thing. I'm about to start doing a lot of lightning, John. Good. Yep. We'll get to hear plenty of rants from you about it. <laughs> right now, what I really want, and I don't think it's possible, maybe someone can tell me, but I, ha- I have to build this component, and the only way I can build it is to be able to have a, a parent component and a child component. But what I want is I want one single component, you drag it on the page, and then you can drag the child components into it. So it'd be a component container that you can drag into. But I also want the stuff inside to be able to, and maybe I can do it. I don't know. Uh, so real-time update. A fish of praise tool is called the Fuse IT SFDC Explorer. Fuse it? Fuse it, I guess, or Fuse IT. Yeah, that's it. So if you run Windows, or if you have a Windows VM, I guess, check it out. It's probably a .NET app. Throw up your alley, John. <laughs> uh, Jay, we do not talk about App Club. Now, wait a minute. We have, uh, <laughs> we have .NET Core, right? And all this uh, cross-platform .NET stuff. Can I, would I not be able to run that on a Mac somehow? What? Run what on a Mac? Like if, if, the, if Fuse IT SFD Explorer, if that's, if that's a .NET app, would I not be able to run that? Only if it was built to target the core because um, the .NET Core has different libraries. Well, it has the core libraries, but there are other libraries that aren't compatible with core that have to be written specifically to work with core. I guess anything. Which is basically what, Mono? Is that yeah. what it was for? Is a fork of a fork of mono? Yeah, Jay's saying it's. It, any, I think anything UI related uh, does not work cross platform yet. Anyways, I mean, I don't see why eventually it can't be some kind of abstraction that's cross platform. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't done uh, most of the stuff I've done with .NET lately has just been console stuff. I haven't really gotten into building UIs. I never really got into the whole Metro application stuff. Um, I feel like I really missed that. I don't know if it's changed, but I never got into that. Yeah. All right. Um, so there's this article, and I'm just I've got a, I just kind of highlighted a couple of things. It was about um, workflows for the new developer experience. <clears throat> it was actually um, I think some guy who was sitting in a, a conference talk. I was just kind of frantically taking notes, but just got some quotes here. So developer experience is primarily about minimizing friction from idea to code to delivering observable business value. What do you think of that definition of a developer experience? Minimizing friction. Say it again, that sounds weird. Developer experience is primarily about minimizing friction from idea to code to delivering observable business value. What friction is it talking about, though? Oh, God. You kidding me? Crappy tools, crappy languages, you know, slow deployments, slow tests, bad refact, you know, crappy refactoring support. Just just of of development in general, Salesforce development? No, no, no. This has nothing to do with Salesforce. Okay. So if you have a deployment, if your deployments are slow or if your test suites take forever to run or, um, you know, things don't fit up well or whatever, I don't know. Who knows what? Just, but that's what, it's just, it's just a definition of, you know, if you ask 10 people what developer experience is all about, you, of course, you'll get 10 different answers. That's just one answer. I thought it was, okay. that was pretty good. I see what you're saying. Okay. So anyway, in order to discover good DX, we need to understand the modern developer. Nowadays, a developer is involved with the entire lifecycle, from design to develop to the test to deploy to operate to support. That, that's true of my world, but yeah. It is true of your world? Yeah. I guess you do design. 
Uh, well, it, it, in some environments, there's a larger team, so you're able to kind of specialize. In other environments, your resources <laughs> are limited, and you end up, you know, taking on a lot more responsibility. I don't mind owning it. I, I kind of enjoy the, the different aspects of each part of the process, understanding the requirements, designing and, and, you know, producing prototypes and getting feedback and then, you know, some hard getting the time to actually sit down and write code and then go into the, the cycle of testing and release. The only thing I would change about that is sometimes, and maybe I'm just nitpicking here, um, but sometimes I I like to start in the process before you even get to design because to me, once you start design, that means you have to some degree already mapped out your problem. And I like to be in and on those problem conversations. I want to hear the description of what the problem is, what the business context is, what the requirement is from the people who are writing the check, right? uh, from, see, the, from the sponsor, from whatever, from the, <laughs> from the stakeholders. Right. I, I, used to, I used to subscribe to that. Um, you, you have, you've I, you've I, had that I, mantra for forever. No, I, I, want, I want to pause for a second okay. because I mentioned stakeholders. Right. And so delayed. And hang on, this is gonna take me a second. Maybe it's not. Maybe my computer's not working. You, you can't edit this out, you know. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I guess I don't have. Do I? Don't I have a? I thought I had a Benioff stake thing. Do I? Thought you did. They're not shareholders. They're stakeholders. Is that what he says? My um. Oh my uh. My finder's messed up. So I can just manually find it. So do I start the wait? Benioff. Because I'm losing my point. Stakeholders. I, I guess I don't have it. I don't know. I lost my point. Well, we were talking about that. Okay, so I was just talking about how I like to be in, involved, like when we're still talking okay. about the I problem, right? I found it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I used to subscribe to that because I've, I've heard you say it ton, times and time before, and it made sense to me. Yes, I want to be there to help with the requirements. But the problem is, especially when you're talking Salesforce implementation and, and someone who is implementing a new Salesforce system, I feel like my role to develop custom solutions and custom integrations doesn't lend itself to being too early in the process. I feel like if I'm too early in the process, unless I'm the one designing how Salesforce gets implemented, that's different. But I'm usually not. I'm usually there to augment and fill in gaps. So me being there early on just feels like a, a, a suck on the budget, a drain on the budget, because I just basically sit there, listen, and I'm probably one of the more expensive people on the call sitting there, listen, and just, just absorbing. It's just one of those things where I, I feel like, and, and then there are times where the customer hears that I'm, oh, here's this architect and deliverables start coming in and they want to see my deliverables. They want to see some prototype from me. They want to see some, some visual of what they were trying to convey that we understand it. I'm disappointed to hear you say that, John. Why? Because I think you should understand that being involved in those conversations can really change the direction, can shift where the solution goes in a way that avoids really wrong paths and, mon and, and lots of waste. No, because what ends up happening, if, if I allow it to happen, I end up solutioning right there while we're trying to gather core well, requirements and we lose time. Then that's your own fault. If I don't let that happen, if I just sit there and listen and let the requirements happen, there's a phase, don't, don't go where I think you're going to go when I say this, but there's this process of gathering requirements, sending it back and saying, did we hear everything right? Okay, based on these requirements, here's our solution that we think is going to go. Does that sound like it's going to work for you guys? Okay, now here's an update on all the estimates. You still good with that? We're good. Okay, now let's start getting into build. If I'm early, if I'm 
too early on that, I end up just eating up and soaking up a bunch of time that I just don't feel like the process is ready for me yet. All right. Well, that's, that's fine. Would you and I just have a different... We've always had a different way of working. I know. Okay, let's see if this works. The reason my company is successful is because I'm focused on my stakeholders, not my shareholders. I wonder if that came through. Do people hear that? I'll have to wait 13 seconds to find out. Yeah. Anyway, let's check in. Uh, let's see. Biz, observable business values, how Wall Street values companies. Well, they should. Of course... Who knows how Wall Street values? It's all kinds of speculation on all kinds of crazy stuff that is beyond my brain. That's why I don't buy stocks. Okay, here's another one. You ready? Yep. High productivity and fun comes from intentionally designing experiences of local deployment, packaging apps, continuous integration, and delivery. Intentionally designing experiences. And they include local deployment. Interesting. Oh, this is really what do they mean by intentionally designing experiences? Like, I think I think that what, what they mean is intentionally designing all of those things. Okay, like you design them with intention, with purpose of. So you're you're right. You're designing them and not reacting to things. exactly. You're yeah. not just like f- f- accepting whatever just kind of is there or falls into place somehow. Or right. Um. Anyway, yeah. I mean, like I said, this this article is this guy is basically just like I think, you know in real time trying to capture things. But there is this list of a new normal. It's a, it's a, it's a list, and everyone loves listicles, right? Seven, seven point list. Oh. Okay, number one. <clears throat> this is a new normal. Teams are responsible for aspiring to end-to-end delivery. Aspiring to end-to-end delivery. Okay. Yeah, I'm not... not I feel like I need more context around that yeah. one. Okay, number two. Many components and interactions means code changes that aren't deployed become stale very quickly yes. because microservices and API consumption will have dramatically changed three months later. That is true. That's, that's a, yet another great reason. This goes back to lean, right? Mm-hmm. Which is minimize your working process. Yes. If you look at your Kanban and your working process, you know, that's one thing that's cool. I mean, I don't know, like Jira, right? You can really overmanage with Jira, but if you just keep it simple, like one of the things I love that it lets you do, and I think probably all these things do, is you can say, hey, only allow like two cards or three cards in work in process. Because there's too much stuff changing at once. You know, nothing's stable. Yeah. If you, and also you just end up, I mean, you end up creating you, dependencies on some of those. And, and, and you just end up with more waste. That, yeah. That's the whole lean part of it is you end up with more waste. Because anything in work in process is, is risky. It's mm-hmm. inherently risky. Right. Um, too much is happening without getting feedback on things that have happened. That's, right. Yeah. That's right. the big challenge I have today is just clients just very slow on the testing cycle to the point where we're last minute and they, they do like an, an hour, 15 minute test and go, okay, it didn't break, so release it. And you're, I'm just going, oh God, and, and there's that's some a, that's long a problem with, ahead. And, and not talking about your client at all. And just so, but generally that's a problem with big releases is people want a lot of time to test them. And then what do you do? What does the development team do when you're, they're taking, you know, who knows how long to test big releases? I mean, are you supposed to Stop what you're doing. I mean, obviously, you try to have some good practices. You know, you, you, this thing they're testing, you probably branched off into like a QA or like a release branch mm-hmm. so that if you need to fix some bug on it, you know, you can switch branches back over to that or whatever. But I mean, still talk about, I mean, that's just a lot. That's a lot of work in process. They're right. testing some release branch and you and the development team, meanwhile, has moved on to working on the next release. Is that another uh, case for staying more native than custom? I, I think what I find is they're no, they're, not at all. Oh, it has, they're, they're orthogonal <laughs> concepts altogether. It's my answer. I know that, but I, I guess 
from experience, I've seen clients who they're not software people. They they're not intending to be software people. They they run a, a different kind of business that's maybe services oriented. Uh, but when they start asking for a lot of things out of the box that are custom, that puts them kind of in the world of being a software shop. And it's a tremendous education cycle to get them to understand the hows and whys we do things in, in, in the process. So Roger's got a good question here, which is, do you provide test scripts to your client? That's it. it yes and no. There are some clients who are savvy enough who it's have a... John's weasel answer. No, 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 no. There are some <laughs> clients who who are able to handle testing things. They understand the requirements well enough. They have people in place who are domain experts and understand it. So all you have to do is develop it, say it's ready to test. They test it and we're good. There are some clients who they're so busy in their day-to-day and they're juggling so many things that if we don't give them specific things to test, then it just doesn't get done and we don't get the right kind of sign-off. The problem is we're developing the tests and that's dangerous because I need them to develop the tests. I need them to understand what the system is supposed to do, not us telling them what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And this is one of those things. I mean, we can really peel back the onion on this because it also comes down to, you know, is, has the client provided the budget for the type of team? Do you have a, do you have dedicated like QA test type people? Because I'm telling you, I mean, I've, some of the really good testers that I've uh, seen work that I've gotten to work with on a f- few occasions can test an app like no normal user can. They can break any app you build. They will mm. break it and they'll show you how they broke it. They'll find security holes. They'll just find all kinds of UI glitches, bugs, just flow problems, all kinds of stuff that a, that a normal client, because the client's going to test the happy path too for the most part. That's a problem. Right. Developer's going to test it the way she thinks she built it. Mm-hmm. The client's going to build it the way that he thinks he wants it to work. Right. Right. But no one's going to really, for the most part, in, in most cases, no one's going to really push that to its limits and find just the edge case type bugs and everything. Right. Um, a really good tester will do that. And the question is, do we even have that person on our team? And has the, and if we do, that means that probably, I guess that we do have budget for it, but that's all got to be budgeted in. It, in. So if you don't have that, then who's doing that? Well, I don't know. I do see that as kind of a gap. I know that I expressly call out unit testing as part of an, a line item in the estimate. I don't see that happening on the on the flip side. Um, maybe it's built in, maybe it's factored in, but it's. I, I prefer it to be a line item. I prefer it to be expressed. I, I didn't used to. I used to just say the development, and I would I would put in the unit testing time. I would put in the deployment time, and then as I got more experienced, I broke it out. Here's my development budget hours. Here's my testing budget hours, and here's my deployment budget hours because those those were those needed to be separate. That's a whole other question of like how much you should break out your your estimates into yeah. different categories. I've gotten to where I actually I've, I kind of don't anymore. You don't? Well, I mean, if if the client were to ask, like, well, okay, so you say this thing's going to take, you know, I don't know, four hundred hours, or if you're quoting in hours, let's just say you are. I mean, they might ask, well, how does that break down? And if that's, if they ask, I would, I would say, okay, well, I mean, here's kind of how I think it's going to break down. But I'd, whether I answer that question because they asked me reactively or whether I provided that to them, you know, preemptively, um, I certainly, in either case, reserve the right to move those around however I need to during the, sure. during the process. It's just, yeah. a, it's a, it's kind of a guess. I mean, if you've got, if you're ahead on development, but you need some more, you need some more testing helping, why not just shift some hours to the testing? It just shouldn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ultimately. For me, it just becomes more of a talking point during the, uh, I guess, the review. 
Because ultimately it, seems, it ends up being one big number that the client sees and then we just start invoicing. I think people it's feel not like, like they're sitting there analyzing the budget by each line item. I think re- a lot of the time, the reason I see this get broken out, in my opinion, is because instead of just preventing, presenting some, one big number and saying, well, it's going to cost us this much to get you what you want, people like to present these complicated proposals like, oh, here's all these line items of all these things we have to do. Oh, and yes, they add up to this number. And, and then, but it's like all these things are justifications on why it costs 400 hours to build some screen they want. Well, here's why. Because we got to do this. And it's, Mr. Client, did you think of this? Oh, you probably forgot about this. You're like, we got to do all these things in order to be successful here. And that's why it adds up to that number. You know, of course, the downside is that they can, some, some clients, customers, whether it's internal, external, will kind of micromanage you on those things too. At some, Maybe. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, just depends on the personality types involved. Yeah. But the t- whole test script thing is easy. You know, if you, if you know you're going to have or ne- want to do test scripts, the, the best thing to do is like, and I, I do this, um, I've been doing, oh, a lot more data migration, or not data migration, but integrations than I ever wanted to. But you can, this is, and this is really the same thing with like user stories or whatever. Um, in fact, user stories is probably a, an easier example, but when you, user stories basically become test cases. They should. Because you say, as a... They should be the seed for As it. an accounting user, I can, you know, run the monthly closeout process or whatever, right? And that becomes a... That well, the literally story, just the flows story right says, into a test I case. need to get from A to B. The test case says mm-hmm. that you have to, okay, you have to get dressed, you have to get in your car, you have to drive X miles, and then you're at destination B. I think that's the big difference, is just the amount of detail. Yeah. And the, the different tools and mechanisms that you use in between to get there. Right. But back to the integration thing, like I've got, I've turned, I've taken like integration, like um, mapping documents and turned them into test scripts. So I'll, it'll say, okay, go into your accounting system and enter this. Mm-hmm. Then go over to Salesforce and search for that thing you just entered in the accounting and see that it's there. Then refer to the f- this field map and make sure that the fields, you know, like it's kind of easy to, if you've, if you've kind of documented what you're doing and you, I mean, you know me, I'm, I, I made my theory on documentation is like you should do just enough documentation, right? Because anything more than that ends up getting wasted, not used, or is wrong. Um, but you know, if, if you hit, if you've got some decent documentation, you can you can actually use that in your testing process, and you're not having to reinvent the wheel just to create some testing documentation. But yeah, I mean, I end up having to create more testing scripts than I would like because mm-hmm. I don't like writing testing scripts, and a lot of times it's someone else that can help me do that as well. But Wanna, depends wanna, on who I'm working with. I want to pause and address Roger's question. He says, he says, wait, what? How are you building something for someone that isn't a domain expert? I think that was based on your comment, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. So all what the time. so can you what was your comment again? Um, that some clients have domain experts and we all we have to do is implement the solution that we say we're going to implement and they can effectively test it and validate it. Yeah, because I think without saying, the need for us to write scripts for them. I think what you're saying, like let's say you're writing an accounting app, like are the people that have paid you to write that up? Are they not accountants? Like, aren't they? Aren't they the domain experts? Aren't they, shouldn't they be the one that tell to tell you whether you have implemented an accounting, you know, period close process correctly? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you have? Why is it that you have to write a script for them? Like, they should. They're the domain expert. <laughs> but it's, but sometimes the project isn't driven by the domain experts. Sometimes there's someone high high up who has a fair amount of political clout who can kind of I don't want to say bully, but kind of dictate, and they, they do so. It's almost like they do so to a certain extent where the process works, even though they've kind of dictated the process, it doesn't actually work the way they think it does. So you have these people that are in higher up, they, they say, here's how it works. And then as you get closer to release and you start training people, they go, 
that's not how that works. That's not what we do. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I think you come into the play where you're working with people you think and who have said, I am the domain expert on this, but for some reason or another, whatever the reason being, I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. They really don't understand. Can you ding yourself, please? I didn't want you to ding yourself. You lost, the, you lost it already. I'm going to start dinging you. Well, it's low. It's in a different position. How many times have you hit your microphone now? I told you I like to touch it. There you go. <laughs> I mean, all right. I need to get through this list. Okay. All right. Where were we? Um, developers need to understand business goals more. Quote, we need to open up more room for KPIs and end user empathy, he said. KPIs? Mm. Yeah, key performance indicators. Ugh, that sounds gross. Yeah, I'm going to skip this one. Okay, number four, environmental parity, including data, is essential. Environmental parity, including data. too many buzzwords. Is essential. Development must be as close to production. Oh, yeah, environment. I get it now. Just saying like your, your test environment and your production environment. Okay, including like databases that they have. Mm -hmm. Like your, your test environment should be identical to production. Yes. Now, sometimes this is impossible, but you need to try. Right. Uh, development must be as close to production as possible, or even developing and testing in production. Things like Kubernetes has allowed us to get even more loosely coupled and even, uh, and even more complex systems. So I can almost guarantee that what I test works in production. It is getting easier with orchestration tools like that to just like have a test environment you spin up and you do your tests and it's identical to production and then, and then it's done and it goes away, vanishes. Uh, the inner, I guess in the Salesforce world, was it, what's the closest to that? Scratch orgs? But scratch orgs are so different than production orgs. Well, I don't know. I guess not. In, in many ways, they're incredibly similar. So, I mean, they're, they're meant for you to be able to stand up an environment that would match. But does it match? Does it have the exact same data? No. Yeah. So it kind of feels well because I mean data and metadata is kind of loosely governed in the Salesforce world. But you're not going to have your you're not going to have your production data accessible to you. You shouldn't. Yeah. No. But also not sure that scratch orgs are the where you sh are designed necessarily for that type of testing. I don't think right. they are actually. It shouldn't be. But I mean, suffice it to say that it's it's still way too hard. The whole, I mean, the idea is getting, that, getting environments that you need, getting environments that match production, all that stuff is still way too hard in the Salesforce world. Yeah. It's so much easier with something like Kubernetes. I mean, or no, um, normally what's what, Microsoft's? So something fabric, surface fabric, or whatever it is? Well, that's supposedly even uh, better than Kubernetes is. I, I've never used it though, so I wouldn't know. All right, number five. The inner development loop ideally needs to run with the real environment with multi developer clusters and staging like clusters if not clustered directly in production. Quote, you have to be careful to not trip over yourself in shared data, unquote. This is, this is I think this, this, some of these things are very Kubernetes focused. Uh, okay, number six, each developer needs to be able to run the full software development cycle, including self-service, without handoffs, deployments, halts, and even YAML. <laughs> Does, are they talking about YAML, the... Um, the the language, the markup language, or whatever. I would assume so. Yeah, I, I, that that's like one of these things is not like the other. So, like, why did why is the YAML in there? I don't even understand that. Um, but uh, and, and overall, that makes sense, I guess. You need to run the full life cycle. Life cycle. Yeah, I think a lot of that means um, provisioning hardware. So developers shouldn't have to you know call put in a ticket with IT 
to get some server prov- provisioned or whatever. Like, we should be able to do the whole thing ourselves, soup to nuts. I mean, the technology exists for that now. The tools exist for that now. I mean, wouldn't you want to be hardware agnostic? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't your tooling or your, we'll say, container just be able to handle that? Well, let's say that um, you're, you're working on a new feature that requires a, an, an in-memory key-value cache yeah, thing okay. of some sort. You gotta, you know, and it's got to run on something or whatever. Like, you should be able to do the whole thing yourself. Yeah. And with the infrastructure's code, things like, um, what's Amazon's called? I forget now, but uh, you got um, uh, Terra, uh, Terraform's um, uh, what is that? Was it? Oh, uh, it's yeah, Terraform. That's what it's called, right? Which is the one I prefer. Oh, um, it's uh, HashiCorp makes that. But yeah, I mean, you basically have this kind of data structure that represents your infrastructure, and you deploy that in AWS or wherever, and it spins all these things up and to your specification. And then if you ever need to change it, you just make a change to that file, and then it. Goes to your goes to AWS and you know kills one server, <laughs> fires up another one, you know whatever to just constantly match what you need. And there's another ding for John. He has a microphone. Uh, okay, last one. Sorry, and this this list I don't think this really applies a lot to kind of Salesforce development, but that's okay. Uh, n- number seven, staging, quote unquote staging, now delivers a low return on investment. Instead, favor contract tests and observability in production. So with things like red, or not red, green, blue, green deployments, um, just easily rolling forward, you know, and, and the fact that it's, it actually can be hard to test some of these things anywhere other than production. And, and because it's so easy to deploy now and so quick to deploy, mm-hmm. just basically just deploy and test production. Um, design your app and your infrastructure to be highly mo- observable and monitorable so that if there is a problem, you see it, you know, very quickly and you can just make some quick change, push that into production. But again, you have to have, <laughs> it's got to be a lot in place to do this, this type of thing. Right. And this is not happening in the Salesforce world because it can take two or three hours just to get a deployment, just to find out whether your deployment's going to be successful or not. And there's no, there's no blue-green deployments. It's, it's an all or nothing. You probably don't even have atomic deployments. You probably have, you're going to have to deploy in parts and pieces in lots of cases. Uh, let's see. This guy recommended less expensive ways to get feedback in DevOps and lean software environments. Okay, number one, canary testing. So this is rolling out a new service to a small fraction of your traffic, including operations testing, A-B testing, and feature, uh, A-B testing and feature testing. So this is also like blue-green deployments as well, mm-hmm. same type of thing. You can, because with blue-green, you could even, I mean, a lot of times what will happen is, you know, you'll have a load balancer behind it. You know, you've got, let's say a dozen, or how many ever, like, because they're probably, they're probably, um, auto scale, but let's say you have like a dozen app servers. You can roll out your release to one of them. And then you're just looking at the logs and monitoring and seeing if how's it going? You know, are you getting a bunch of 500s now or is it everything cool? You know, you're right. good to go. And if so, then you can say, okay, now roll out to half of them. And you're watching your logs. You're, going, you're just mon- you know, using your monitoring tools. And if it's all good, then you, you finish the thing and roll out to everything. And then there's shadow traffic. This was, this was cool. So shadowing real live traffic one way into a test service of the service. You're not returning data, but you're comparing results and looking for errors on the service. So you're almost like you're taking a, a stream. I oh, know I just hit mine. Oh. Um, you're taking like a small sliver of your incoming traffic and teeing it. So it's still, you know, one part of it is still going into your normal production server, but you're teeing it, make, basically making a copy of it 
into your test environment, and then you're seeing how it performs. You're checking your logs, seeing if it's this and everything's good. Hmm. That's cool. That is cool. Shadow traffic. Again, you ain't doing this in Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there was some other stuff, but and I, I I apologize. That is that was very. This was must have been a. Oh yeah, it was a cloud native talk. So I think some of those things apply though. We we can we can aspire to we can dream to, to, right? take some of the concepts and see how we can apply those. Right. I haven't checked the channel in a while. Let's see. Oh yeah, so that's what Jay said. This is all good, but how do we do this on, on Salesforce? Where do we go for a load balancer? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, we, we don't have the ability to load balance in Salesforce. I mean, it's, well, no, they we do. They do it for us, and we don't have any. We don't, we don't have any control over that load balancing. We right. can't. We can't do a, a canary test, or we can't shard incoming traffic into you know shadow traffic. We can't. You know, we don't have those things. You can't roll back. You know, you can roll forward, but it might take you three hours to roll forward. So, what if you get some disaster of a build in production, and now it's it's going to take you three hours just to just to get the test back, you know, the fix into production. I mean, that mm-hmm. this is some of the problems. I will tell you, though, this is what's worked for me, and it's, it's compromised, but it's, I mean, I'm, and I'm open for if anyone has better ideas. But with Salesforce, and because and, I, I have worked on, it's been, a, it's been probably a little while now, probably at least six months, but I've, I've worked on some very large, um, I guess, orgs, right? Where we, you know, m- many developers, many sandboxes, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of lines of Apex, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And the thing that worked is, <clears throat> is just very frequent uh, deployments yeah. and, and feature talk, you know, feature, uh, there's a lot of things, you know, feature toggles or whatever, the, is that what they're called? Feature toggles, I guess. So getting things into production, but not exposing to users yet, or at least exposing them to parts of users. So you can, it's kind of like canary testing in a way, let certain users ha- expose it to only certain users. Certain maybe it's profile based or there's all, there's all kinds of things you can do, right? How, how do you feel about feature toggling? I mean, I, 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 more often than not, I want to do it, but oftentimes I just don't see the ROI. I might have a, I might well, write a bunch of code to enable this feature toggle, only to use it for like a week while they do some testing, and then it never gets used again. So let's so let's say you're working on a team where two things are in place. Number one, you're deploying. Let's say you're deploying every day, mm-hmm. which is not even extreme. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of companies now are deploying dozens or hundreds of times a day. Yeah. Okay, so let's say you're deploying every day, um, and the team you're on basically has outlawed uh, feature branches, which is a common thing nowadays because feature branches are just you know they're not cool anymore. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's work in process. It's it's diversion. I mean, feature branches they're all they've always been a problem, but nowadays there's just less need for them. So yeah. you you're developing your features on on essentially on master, and so every every time you're pushing up code, it's getting deployed. But it's not done yet. The feature you're working on is not done yet. So you've got to keep it behind a feature toggle. Keep it turned off. Yeah, I guess. In that scenario, I can see it. But yeah, just, uh, again, frequent deployments. You, I never, and this is, the, and, and this is, and there's so many reasons for this. Number one, it's just a good practice, but also just with the Salesforce metadata deployment model, which I'm not even going to get into. You guys know how I feel about it. The fewer changes, because I mean, I'm talking about, you know, again, this, 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 Process or this technique, I guess, does scale p- to pretty big, because we're doing things where we're deploying the the whole. We're not just piecemeal deploying, right? I mean, the on every time someone pushes commits to master, the whole thing gets checked out, built, and deployed. The whole ball of wax, right? But you want that new ball of wax to be just a little bit different than the ball of wax that's already in production. Right, you, you'll you'll hit fewer metadata bugs that way, and these are, I mean, there's there, there's some 
you know, obviously it minimizes developer-induced bugs, but also there's tons of bugs in Salesforce's deployment system, and you will run up against fewer of them if you make small changes at a time. But it, it, it seems only worth it if you're working on a large-scale application. doesn't seem worth it for a few triggers here and there, filling some gaps in the automation, business process automation. Doesn't seem worth it. Well, especially if you're just if you're on a, if you're kind of an in and out thing, like yeah. some you know some client just calls you up and it's like, hey, um, I don't know you from Adam or I I heard, saw you on the internet. Can you know we need a page? Can you do a page for us? Yeah, I'm not gonna no because it would take me, it'll take me two weeks just to get this process set up. You know, right? It's designed for. I mean that type of but but that's what. But it's a balancing act because at some point you could you could be working on a, with a client who just wanted a page. They like your work and they bring it in to work on another page and then they decide we have this new build we want to do. It's the biggest thing and. It, you know, before you know it, you're backed into the need for it. I don't think that's a continuum. I mean, like, at what point do you actually use version control for something? Well, in my opinion, always. Even the smallest thing. I mean, what, what harm is it to do a get and it? Takes you two seconds. I do locally. The other thing I do is, like, when, I'm, when I get pulled into, like, a new client and they're not, they don't have an existing Git repository, the first thing I do is an f- entire pull down of their entire metadata and uh, do a get and it and commit so I can have a ca- I can capture their org as it was before I touched anything in it. To me, that's super important. Yeah. I need to develop better habits. I sometimes sit on, on commits for a while. <laughs> yeah. And then and again, I, if you're and working by yourself, disaster and go, oh crap, I didn't, it's well, been a while true. since I committed. Uh, you, <laughs> I you, lost that. You can, yeah, you'll, you can lose stuff. Um, but thankfully, uh, good IDE tools also auto commit versions. And so I was able to find it and bring it back. But yeah. You know, there's a, uh, I got a little pro tip here for you. Even if you don't have any plan on, you, you, let's say you don't want to commit right now for whatever reason. Well, there's no harm in committing locally. You could always, Amend I have that. commitment issues, Jeremy. Yeah, I know. I can yeah. tell. You can always amend a commit, right, locally, it's, and it causes no problem because you, if, as long as you haven't pushed it anywhere yet. Um, <clears throat> but simply doing a git add and just, mm-hmm. you know, just a git add dot, right? Add everything. Any change you have, just what that does is that actually adds to the index and creates uh, what git calls objects for those in the, the, their, the object repo. Mm-hmm. And even though you haven't committed, if you somehow like lost something or whatever, the, the, the status of all every file is now in there somewhere. You can go get it if you if you needed to. So you, it's there. Hmm. Yep, it's not in the ref log, and it's not you didn't commit it yet. But as long as you add it, it there the, the, every file is now the state of those files is is an object in the object database, and you can go find it. So, little tip there. Good to know. Um, yeah. Well, John, those are my topics for today. What have you, what have you got? That's about it. We covered. What? what really? Oh, yeah. You had some topics. I did, but we covered some of them. What did, what did we cover? Well, we covered the f- new flow. We covered the community stuff. What's the um, new flow? The new flow builder. Oh, oh, you were just asleep through that. No, one. we didn't you cover didn't. it. You just said there's a new flow builder. Then I have flash. because you okay. didn't want to get into it. You were just like, oh, I didn't say I didn't want to get flow. into it. No, I, I didn't. Like flow. Let's get into I it. I don't use flow. No, let's get into it. I told you it comes out in spring 19. Is the oh, announcement? Okay. We got some new all screenshots right. of it of how it looks. It looks pretty. It uses the lightning design system. Those are all, all. That's all we have on it right now. I look forward to it because I don't want to have to use Flash. I had to install Flash on my machine. I felt dirty. How, why have you had what browser are you using that doesn't have Flash? None of my browsers have Flash by default. Chrome does still. No, it does not. Why do I have Flash then? I have Flash because you don't update your browser because you, you've uh, whatever. you don't you don't restart. I clean my machine thoroughly every so often and, and reinstall my but OS. That's because you have Windows PTSD. That's not my fault. I do, but what I'm saying is I like that nothing I didn't have to have Flash on my machine, but now I do. All right, because I got into some flow stuff, so I'm trying to be good. Okay. So nothing else then? We're done? Let's check the channel real quick here. Let's see. Uh, 
Ugh, beers are huge and you have a tech background. Why not open a brewery? Well, because I'd have to take a pay cut is a problem. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that I, I like beer and I also like making beer, but if I had to make beer to make a living, I'm not sure I would love it as much. Would it not ruin it for me? That's, that's what I'm afraid of. I think if your livelihood depended on it, then, then it goes from being this hobby to being your livelihood. And that's what changes your perspective on it. Yeah, I guess. And it's, a, it's, it's very saturated, right? Isn't, I mean, just about, you can throw a rock and hit a home brewer trying to be a, trying to be the next yeah. craft brewer. And there's, I, I feel like the, uh, you know, and there's been you know, talk of uh, the, the, the big backlash, I guess, of crowd or the, you know, there's going to be a lot of closings of, of, you know, there's so many craft, where I think we just hit 7,000 craft breweries in the United States now. And in the past, I think five years has gone from 2,000 to 7,000. So crazy growth. And are we going to have a big, you know, falling out, a culling, if you will, right? The, the bubble's going to burst. Yeah, the bubble's going to burst. And, you know, is now the best time to start a brewery? Probably not. I don't know. I'd rather drink start, other start a growler fill then. And you can drink everyone's beer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, even, that's even tougher. That's just, that's just a lot of work. What about coffee shop? I'd, you know, I'd be close. We have the perfect name. Good day, sir. I think I'd be close. Good day, sir. Have a cup of coffee. Yeah, we, we wouldn't get sued at all. <laughs> <clears throat> the only reason we're allowed to use this name is because we are not a commercial entity. If we made money on this, I guarantee you someone's lawyers would call us and say, yep, uh, we're going to need you to write us a check. It, it's a common phrase. Yeah. Good day, sir. Yeah, it's just a know. phrase. Well, except that we happen to play audio clips from certain movies well, that are copyrighted. <laughs> kind of blows up that argument. Reinstalling macOS makes stuff so much faster. I've never reinstalled macOS. No, I have. I'll do it at least once a year. Although, although I think once out of all the Macs I've had, I did not. Um, what am I trying to say? I didn't do that restore process or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I actually just manually installed, you know, the apps that I knew I needed and just copied my documents folder over. Only once. Other than that, yeah, I always I, just I keep do a that. running log of my. And what about iOS? I use? What about iOS? Every time I get a new phone, I just restore my backup onto the new one. Oh, I don't. <laughs> well, how do you? How do you not? Because I don't have anything on my phone that I need to keep. It's either available hmm. through cloud services, which means it downloads automatically, or I mean, I don't really have that much on my phone. Maybe I should try that sometime. The the, the the it it if you get used to your icons and everything being in a certain spot, it does kind of get annoying to have to re-put everything around. But I kind of see it as an opportunity to reorganize and get rid of stuff. Yeah, because you you you'll, you'll tend to over time just download crap, and before you know it, you got a bunch of crap. You know, you maybe used an app once, and it's like, well, get rid of it. Yeah, it's not like you can't re-download it again. I'm always afraid I'm going to miss something like some dot file or something that I forgot to copy over. Or who knows? Oh, hmm. it doesn't seem to be a problem. My computer runs fine. All right, John, are we done? We're done. Well, thanks for everyone who uh, joined us for the live stream. Oh, wait, let's, let's ask if anyone has a title because I've only got one title. Oh, that's true. That's the, <laughs> that's the big benefit of live stream is people can do titles for us. Yeah, because I'm lazy and I only got one title. But yeah, if we, you don't want this episode to be called I Like Touching It, come up with a better title. <laughs> and we need a better title. We try to keep our titles PG, G or PG. Or whatever. We do some innuendo every so often. Oh, there's John with this. I'm trying to fix Microphone it because again, falling. Oh, oh, God, John. Wait, I need the counter. Chat said we're they gonna, can't hear it. So I can hear it loud. I don't know how they can hear it. Um, yeah, we, I don't know. Uh, you think we'll keep doing live stream? I don't know if anyone's, I mean, I don't even know if people will j- join these or if it'll be even useful or not. 
people have joined. I mean, people it, have and asked for been it. in the conversation. What, yeah. what are you saying? People no, no. I mean, I, well, they're, I think they're here now just because it's a novelty. Like it's right. It's new. It's like, oh, what's this weird thing? Let's check it out. <clears throat> but I don't know. I mean, it's. Uh, I guess if if people are interested and if if there's an, if there's enough interest, we will might keep. Doing, I mean, it's a little. It's an extra work. We got this extra setup here. Although we can probably. I, I mean, this was our the first time we did it. I mean, it's it's gonna. It's going to take a while for before we kind of make this a fluid process. Yeah. It took us a while to get our catch and release process down. Right. We're pretty good at that now. It's still tedious because of all the things I have to do. I'm working on fixing <laughs> that right now. I got, I re- I've already started paying for Fireside. I got to get switched over. Yeah, we're paying for a lot of stuff. Yeah. All right, John. Well, I think we should wrap it up. Um, uh, what what do we need to do? What do we do? We, uh, emails. E- uh, we like to get emails. If you want to contact us and give us, you know, questions or feedback, whatever, it's info at gooddayserpodcast.com. So hit us up. We do like to get those. We have a Slack team, which is uh, very friendly and funny and interesting. And that's at uh, gooddayserpodcast.com slash community. Just put in your email address and uh, John will add you manually. Please be patient. Yep, and we've been doing. We have this live channel now in the in the Slack where you can listen to the show live and uh, follow along in the live conversation with others. What else? <laughs> I don't know if uh, opening up titles to the community is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> is this going downhill? <laughs> it could be www. That'd be a good title. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Uh, well, that's all I got, John. Let's wrap this thing up. All right. Well, to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.